I would direct your attention to Hebrews 11, which we've just read, and specifically to verse 27. Hebrews 11, verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It was the year 372, and the Roman emperor Valens was lending his support to the heretical adherents of Arianism. He had set about persecuting, banishing, and even martyring some of the faithful pastors who were holding to the biblical orthodoxy of the Council of Nicaea. And in 372, Valens set his crosshairs on Caesarea in the region of Cappadocia, which is now modern uh, central Turkey, and especially on one lone figure, a belligerent bishop who had defied the emperor and refused his demands to cooperate with Arians. The man's name, as many of you will know, was Basil of Caesarea, later called Basil the Great, one of the fourth, fourth century uh, early church patristics, three, one of the three Cappadocian fathers. Well, the emperor summoned Basil to appear before the prefect Modestus to answer for his actions, and you can picture it. Some of you have before. On one side, you can see all of the, the, the pageantry of, of royal opulence. Here you have worldly power and glory. And on the other side, there is one lone pastor dressed in a plain, worn-out tunic with a leather girdle and simple shoes. Modestus demanded that Basil should explain how he could dare, as none other dared, to resist and oppose so great a potentate and to refuse respect, to respect the religion of his sovereign when all others had submitted. Basil replied, because it was not the will of his real sovereign. Modestus was provoked to anger, and in his fury, he shouted, at Basil. What? Have you no fear of my authority and the resources of my power? Basil asked what power that might be. At an effort of intimidation, he growled, the power of confiscation, banishment, torture, and death. Basil replied, have you no other threat, for none of these can reach me. Modestus, of course, was stunned and blinking in bewilderment, asked, how is that? Basil replied along these lines, and I'm paraphrasing. As to confiscation, I own nothing. All that I have is the Lord's. And what little, what little is given to my stewardship, these few rags in my books, all that I possess, you are welcome to demand of me. Banishment is impossible because I am not confined to anywhere here and the whole earth is the Lord's. I am a pilgrim and a citizen of another country. As for torture, what hold can that have on one whose body belongs to the Lord? 
and who is nigh dead and who will soon be resurrected. And death, death is my benefactor. You can merely send me sooner to my God, for whom I live and for whom I am prepared to die and to whom I have long been hastening. Modestus was dumbfounded and could only mutter that no man had ever spoken to him in that way. To which Basil famously replied, Well then, perhaps you have never met a true bishop. If you had, in his defense, he would have used precisely the same language, which was an obvious dig at the Arians. Now I recount this story, some of you have heard it before, but not only because of the heroic stand that was taken against a godless magistrate, but more importantly, because it illustrates one who lived under the power of another world. And it shows how one living under the power of another world is actually liberated from the things of this world. Well, this morning we considered the roots of seeing the unseen, and this afternoon we turn to the fruit. Let me make something clear. You cannot begin with the fruit. You cannot begin where we begin here this afternoon, because if you do, without understanding the roots, it will result in spiritual sterility. You need to hold into your mind what you heard this morning, the sight of Christ, of heaven, the eternal inheritance, the resurrection. All of these things supply roots. So we'll be considering in this second sermon this afternoon the fruit of seeing the unseen, which in summary is living for another world. That's the fruit of seeing the unseen, living for another world, which entails a self-conscious refusal to live for this world. You'll notice there in Hebrews 11 that we're told Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then in our passage, by faith, he forsook Egypt. Living for another world means a self-conscious refusal to live for this world. In other words, the Bible offers us no middle ground. It is either or. It cannot be and never has been and never will be a both and. And in that sense, seeing the unseen really is a game changer. It really does result in a paradigm shift for us. It results in a sea change to the thinking of, of God's people. And it brings drastic, though thrilling, implications to us. The word of God presses us, and it presses us to grapple with the truth. We have all of these pernicious tentacles that, that have to be uprooted from our hearts in order that our hearts might be held in heaven. Both in the case of Abraham and Moses, really all of them, but it comes out especially in those two in Hebrews 11. You see this coming out. Here's Moses, and he can see with his physical eyes a contrast, right? He looks at Egypt, treasures, wealth, power, glory, 
you know, all of these things. He can see it. And then he looks with his eye, and he can see Israel, and its affliction, and its suffering, and its hardship. And so Moses saw the contrast between these two things. But the point is, he saw more. He saw the unseen, him who is invisible, our passage says. Earlier, he could see the recompense of the reward. He's seeing the unseen by, by faith. And so he refused the world and he chose the greater. And so this afternoon, we're interested in how do we move from theory, from the concepts that we heard this morning, to actually internalizing it and absorbing you know, this whole biblical perspective, embodying it, being transformed by it, becoming it. How do we become what the Bible describes for us? And let me be absolutely crystal clear at the beginning here. What we'll be considering, what follows, is the calling of every Christian. This is the calling of every Christian. This is not the exception for a select few. To be a Christian is to live for another world in some of the ways that we'll be considering. So we'll, we'll note th really five things. Living for another world entails more than this, but it, by way of really introduction, it entails at least five things. First of all, living for Christ, not self. First of all, living for Christ, not self. We saw in our study of Isaiah at the end of chapter 2, cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? What praise belongs to a dirt-eating worm while it lives and which turns to dirt when it dies? Seriously. What is man in his achievements? On the last day, God will, up, God will burn up the piles of wood, hay, and stubble. And if, if indeed any gold, silver, or precious stones remain, then all of the glory, honor, and praise will go to Christ alone. Therefore, we are to lift up his name now. We're to let him have all of the glory. We're to live for him, not ourselves. He will, he will not share his glory with another, now or then, ever. Well, to deny ourselves is to affirm Christ. To deny ourselves isn't something we do just by saying no to ourselves. It entails that. But it's actually saying yes to Christ, which results in saying no to, to ourselves. Right? The gospel brings with it a call to die. We are called to die. We're called to deny ourselves every day, to take up our cross and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And men and women, boys and girls hear this and they hear some of the implications of it and they say, oh, the cost. Look at how high the cost is. Oh, yes, the price tag. The price tag always seems to be the snag, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ said it would be that way. But that is because you only look on the scene and not on the unseen. Because the fact is, we never lose anything for Christ. 
the apparent cost, which sits on the surface, ultimately brings far, far greater gain, an abundance of gain. So that what that means is that the call to die is actually a call to truly live. That's a point that needs to be expounded at greater length, and we don't have time. The Christian life demands self-denial, not self-promotion, not self-gratification, not self-indulgence. It calls us to forget self because we are lost in the all-absorbing focus on Christ alone. We are to make Christ all or nothing. It's one or the other. We're to strive to make so much of Christ, his interests, his kingdom, his person, his glory, that you actually squeeze out all else, leaving nothing for self. That's the call. Leave no trace of self at all, even if that means dying in obscurity and poverty. You think of sacrificial service. The Lord calls us to sacrificial service, not comfortable, not easy, not obvious. Sacrificial service. That means doing the difficult, right? To live for Christ and not self means doing the difficult. It means habitually choosing, embracing opportunities to do the difficult. And the fact is that we're able to bear far more than we think. We're to learn to get comfortable in the uncomfortable, to make that our, our place. You know, we too often bail at the first signs of difficulty in prayer, in service, in suffering, in all forms of sacrifice. No, the Bible says situate yourself, learn to situate yourself under the weight of the cross. Acclimate to breathing the atmosphere of austerity. It's interesting, you know, the training of the Navy SEALs teaches them that their breaking point is way beyond, way beyond what they thought. In fact, they say that when you get to the point that you are completely wrecked and have absolutely nothing left, you're only at 40%. And so what happens? They grow accustomed to living, even thriving under enormous physical demands so that, you know, the previous pressures, which used to seem overwhelming, now seem inconsequential and trivial. My friends, this is even truer of the soldiers of Jesus Christ. In the spiritual exercise of their souls, in the service of the great king, what, is, what does the Bible say? Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man, war, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Habit, instinct, gut reaction. For the one living for Christ, having seen the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is to choose to do the difficult. Self-sacrifice. I mean, isn't this, this is one of the things that sets apart the heroic Christians, they don't cave when everybody else does. Now, when I was at the conference delivering this address, as I explained this morning, 
I told him that there's a way to apply this to the immediate circumstances, and it's equally applicable here. We're living for another world. You know that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ advances through the conversion of sinners. You've been taught that. You know it. You know that gospel preaching takes place regularly from this pulpit, week in and week out. You know that there are unconverted people among us. And you know that only God, the Holy Spirit, can bring them to saving conversion. Knowing all of that, what impact does it have? What influence does it have? Who here is thinking from time to time about whether the Lord would have them secretly pull an all-nighter in order to go without sleep and wrestle with the Lord to lay bare his arm in converting your friends and family in preparation for worship on a Sabbath day? The point is that that kind of question is that kind of question even within the orbit of your thinking. That there are times when the Lord calls us to pull an all-nighter in order that we might wrestle with him for the salvation of sinners. And I made this point to the young people last week. They're doing lots of activity, which is great. They should set aside time during the week to gather together. Young ladies by themselves, young men jointly having the young men lead. Pray, seek the Lord, and so on. Asked the Lord for these things, and they actually heeded the call. And I'm, praise be to God's great name, the week was filled with not only young people, but especially the young people leading the way. Multiple prayer meetings throughout the week, seeking the Lord's face and crying out for his blessing. Starting with seeing the unseen means then coming, expecting the Lord to show us demonstrations of divine power in answer to his prayers. You know, you sit down on a Sabbath morning or on another occasion, you sit down under the preaching of God's word and you can say to yourselves, you can turn to the person next to you and ask, can you see him? Can you see him? Have you seen the Lord? Now watch what God the Lord will do. We're to live for another world. We're to live for the tangible advance of the eternal kingdom. This is the kind of spiritual ethos and atmosphere we want cultivated in our congregation. This is what we're about. We're simple in that sense. We hang everything on one thing. And we stick to it. Come what may. For the glory of God. All too many are focusing on self and family and job and building our own little fiefdom, our own little kingdom. But the fact is you can't advance Christ's kingdom and your own personal interests at the same time any more than you can sprint in opposite directions at the same time. One advances at the expense of the other unless... And this is important. All your interests are absorbed in his interests. Christ says, seek first his kingdom. Your whole life should be riveted on Christ's kingdom and interests. 
we should subordinate absolutely everything in our lives to this one aim. The constant question is, in this situation and in this decision that I have to face and in what I, what I have to do today, what best serves this aim? Living for another world, another kingdom, the, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, it is liberating to be consumed with Christ and to cast aside self, knowing that no man can serve two masters. You know, we have reformed groups that are very wildly popular today. They write books, they hold conferences on the celebration of feasting and the like, you know, all these sorts of things. And they love to, empl they love to employ the wow factor, shock and all, you know, which attracts people, excites people. Hear me. It is not at all impressive to call people to party harder, to focus on building their own family legacy, to enjoy creation. This is just the world's ordinary blasé message, right? The call to die, the call to forget yourself. To spend all for Christ, to live for another world, that is truly shocking. The other is tame. The other is ho-hum. Well, the answer to this false message, mind you, is not primarily arguing with them on Facebook, but outliving them, outliving them in secret. History proves that their influence will wane, wither, and die out. Whereas the biblical position endures to turn the world upside down. If you need evidence, read the life of David Brainerd. Secondly, living for another world entails living for the soul and not just the body. Living for the soul and not just the body. We are to exercise stewardship over the body as a means to exercising the soul. Health is not an end in itself. Hear me. We are filled up to have more to pour out for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always to pour out, not to be used on ourselves or for ourselves. And if the Lord determines that we can do far more for him without our health, then we serve him in the sickbed, whether sick or healthy. The goal is the same, making health everything, the end rather than the means not only attempts to prevent the inevitable, it, completely, it is a complete failure to see the resurrection and for it to loom large in our hearts, in our minds, as we heard this morning. Seeing the unseen means seeing trials clearly. It is actually, when we see trials clearly, we, we, we come to the conclusion, it is wonderful to be weak. It's actually wonderful to be weak because our weakness is what magnifies his power. And demonstrations of his power 
is what magnifies his praise. And his praise is what magnifies himself. And he is everything. So we can say to the Lord, weaken me in the way. Weaken me in the way. Proverbs 12 verse 21 says, there shall no evil happen to the just. Period. There shall no evil happen to the just. That means that the bad news is actually always good news with the Lord. Our bad news is his good news. We're told he does all things well. He works all together for the good of those who love him. That's true in all the circumstances. And so in our worst circumstances, it's actually, if we're seeing the unseen, the very best circumstances. Suffering is experiencing the pain of breaking our grip on this world, of being weaned from its pleasures in order that they might be replaced with exquisite pleasures. Here's the problem. The factory of the American church has cranked out a generation of spiritual pansies. And sadly, the reaction of those who recognize the problem has been equally pathetic. Hopelessly insecure men propping up themselves with brash bravado online and a tough guy image that just smacks of more of the world. You compare that to our fathers, whether ancient church, Reformation church, subsequently, who humbly, secretly lifted the heavy weight of personal sacrifice before Christ. These exhibited biblical fortitude without ever needing to persuade everybody else, much less themselves. We also need to redefine danger. If we're living for the soul and not just the body, we need to redefine danger in Christ's service. We need to view danger in light of the resurrection. Jesus says, fear not those who kill the body. Don't feel, fear those who can only kill the body. And we, we begin to see the unseen. We begin to have the glory of the resurrection set before us and so on. We begin to, to actually long for and look for the eternal reward that God has given. We see something of the glory of Christ which surpasses everything else. And we think, what's the worst that can happen in serving him, in loving him, in spending and being spent for him? Well, about the worst that can happen is they kill us. And if you're seeing the unseen, you're able to say with Basil, in essence, is that all you've got? Is that all you've got? Paul says, if your only hope is in this life, you are most miserable. But it's not the only hope that the Lord's people have. As we heard this morning, hope is seeing with confidence all that the Lord has pledged to us. Consider the ultimate expression of this, the whole matter of martyrdom, right? The idea of martyrdom makes most Christians queasy, and understandably so. But martyrdom is actually the culmination and capstone of a life of self-denial, a refusal to hold on to even one's own life in the service of the Savior. 
I've been doing work in preparation for uh, this trip to, to Istanbul and the, the courses I have to teach there on the ancient church, the first 500 years. You know, we, we look at the ancient church's glorification and pursuit of martyrdom, and most dismiss them, even disdain them, due to we, what we perceive as extremes. Hear me on this. Their imbalances on one end actually expose the nakedness of our greater extremes on the other end. The fact is, they were actually closer to the truth than we are because they saw something we don't see. Right? They could see the unseen. They had a truth in hand and misused it at times, while our hand is empty, not grasping the truth at all. Right? They read this passage in Hebrews 11, and they believed and absorbed the words of verse 32, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And our ancient fathers, they could see it. They, they could actually taste it. And they desired that better resurrection. And they valued that far above the price tag of death. In essence, they were saying, really? This for that? We're able to have a better resurrection in exchange of offering ourselves and our lives for the Lord, this is too good to be true. So they went to death thinking, I am so unworthy of this privilege of giving my life for the Savior. Right? They saw Christ and followed Christ all the way to the scaffold. I mean, we go on in Hebrews 11, verse 37 and 38. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. How incredibly true are those words? The world was not worthy of them because they lived above the world while they were in it. They were living for another world. To see clearly the unseen leads to saying, what an incredible privilege it would be to be called by Christ, to be allowed to offer my life for the Redeemer, to be gifted by grace alone with an even better resurrection with which to glorify God while not seeking it. I wish the Lord permitted me such service. Now I realize you might not be there right now. And I do not intend to unduly burden any. But can you at least see it? Oh, that you would be enabled to get there. It would be liberating to be so consumed with the all-absorbing sight of Christ that it squeezes out all of self, loosening even the grip 
on life itself. After all, parents will take crazy risks and endanger their lives to save their children from harm's way. How much more for the Savior? For what are you willing to die? That's the question. For what are you willing to die? Well then, whatever your answer, that is what you will live for. That is what you will live for. You say, well, what about the fears? You know, people think of, you know, the fears of what it costs us to serve Christ and so on and so forth. I can't do it. You know, this is genuine Christian experience. It needs help, encouragement, counsel, all the, 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 the helps that the Lord gives. And the usual answer given to people is, well, God gives us grace in the moment. And that's true. That's, that's fine. It's a fine answer. But it's not all. There's more. A life lived seeing the unseen, we heard about this morning, prepares for dying seeing the unseen. You know, you look at Stephen's martyrdom. We're told that his face was shining like an angel. But if you look at what he says earlier, his eyes were already glued on Christ in heaven before the Lord gave him a sight of it at the end. We live seeing the unseen as preparation for being able to die seeing the unseen. Some will be tempted to say, well, isn't this extreme? Isn't this reckless? We never lose. If we lose our life, we gain it. Losing life is not just martyrdom, mind you. It is losing what the world deems a good life. We don't need martyrdom. It means losing everything the world tells you a good life consists of. Seeing the resurrection changes everything. I don't mean hearing it about it. I don't mean affirming it as an orthodox doctrine. I mean actually coming by faith and your imagination and thoughts being filled with what the Bible reveals to us about the resurrection, seeing it, certainty in it, hope of it, looking to it. It changes everything. You know well, we've read as a congregation John G. Payton's autobiography. The old, he's back in Britain and the old man comes to him and says, you can't go to the South Pacific. The cannibals will eat you. To which Peyton says, sir, you will soon die. And worms are going to eat you. Peyton says, in essence, I could care less whether cannibals eat me or worms eat me. I'm living for, in the hope of the resurrection. He could see clearly the unseen, and so he lived for another world. Thirdly, living for another world also means living for eternity and not time. We all live with one foot already in the grave, whether you feel it or not. Right? Time is so incredibly short, so incredibly brief. And yet, it is your only allotment to invest in what will last forever. It's so short, yet this is it. 
This is the only window you have to invest in what will last forever. One of our free church fathers, William Chalmers Burns, I've done a biographical address on him. You may remember he was one who was used to turn the world upside down, as we heard this morning. He once stood on some steps and exhorted his fellow ministers with these words, <clears throat> Brothers, we must hurry. We must hurry. Characterized his life. We contend against the clock. We do. We contend against the clock. Right? The grains of sand are falling through the hourglass. We know in the words of the, the poet, only one life will soon be passed. Only, only, only what's done for Christ will last. Whenever you say yes to one thing, you inescapably say no to another. Everywhere and always. Every time you say yes to one thing, you inescapably say no to another. Are we living for eternity or time? Our decisions betray the answer. Seeing the unseen produces the ultimate deferred gratification. Right? This captivating sight of Christ and of heaven. It supplants self-seeking. It supplants the seeking after the things of the world. It produces a life of sacrifice now in exchange for eternal pleasures and treasures and joys later. And so we, we can move from the, the meta level to the micro level of our, our detailed daily struggles between choosing what pleases the flesh, instant gratification, and what pleases the Lord, prolonged gratification. My friends, we must set about dismantling Christian minimalism. The idea that, you know, what's the minimum we can do for Christ? What's the least we can do? How, you know, the least amount of time, as long as I have this minimum, right? This is, the, this is what's so popular everywhere, in Reformed churches even. And I've touched on it before. You've heard me more than anyone. Various forms. Christian minimalism. God's word utterly and absolutely refutes this nonsense. And we need to confront it head on. We need to strike it at its core, to obliterate it, to pulverize it, and to fling its carcass back under the garbage heap out of which it crawled. Is Christ flattered by people living primarily for this world and then casting the leftover crumbs to him? Answer the question, is he? No, he's not. Because the glory of God and the good of Zion depend on giving all and withholding nothing for him. But you know what's more? The believer himself is bereft of all of the benefits that are bequeathed to him in this Christian minimalism. All oh, that's lost in terms of what's truly valuable. 
If we could see that, seeing the unseen, you'd realize that this dismantling of Christian minimalism is actually just the small thing. That, that, that it's actually, that what we're setting about to do, the aim is to actually elevate. It's actually to edify, to encourage, to arouse the believer to more joy and more comfort and more blessing and more glory and more treasure in heaven. But men tend to always call for less, not more. To reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce. You know, I heard a Reformed minister not too long ago telling the story of our church father, John Welsh of Ayr, and the great exploits he did with regards to prayer. And having given the illustration, he concluded by telling the people, don't try to pray for an hour. I would not advise that you try to pray for an hour. As I said at the conference, I could have put my head through a wall. Absolutely reprehensible counsel. Here's John Welshavere. Don't be like him or do anything like him or even a fraction of what he did. Stupidity. No, what we need is people who are learning what it means to pray for an hour, to stretch yourself, to push, to labor, to persevere, to get your heart aflame with the Lord and to see him and seeing the unseen and to pull down his blessing upon the kingdom by his grace. We need a whole host of people who can pray for a lot longer than an hour. We need Christian maximalism to pray more, to read more, to memorize more, to give more, to evangelize more. When and where can I increase effort to maximize for Christ? You think of the words given to the eldership, the ministers, the apostles initially. Acts 6 verse 4, they're told that they wanted to give, give ourselves continually to prayer and the word. We would take this more seriously if we took it more literally. For all of us, measure it. How much of this day, every day, was given to prayer and to the word? What percentage of ours? Right? You think about practice and all that that entails, but really what we're talking about is flowing out of this morning. It's hunger pains. Having hunger pains of the spiritual eyes, having seen something of Christ, more of him, desirous to see more of him, right? This is what fuels the disciplines. You know, we come to the Bible and we sit down not to go through whatever minimum we have to do to check it off our list. We're on a treasure hunt. We're coming expectant. The Lord's going to show me things I haven't seen before and I can't wait. Lord, don't let me shut this book without having seen something of it. We go to the Lord to offer up the, the desires, our catechism says, of our hearts. Right, Our hearts are being engaged. We're seeing him as we saw this morning. All of these things, contemplation, meditation, our psalm singing, fasting, you know, praying without ceasing, meditating day and night, means what they say. No wonder God loved David. He really was after his own heart. 
Everything that's depicted of him. That old widow Anna was the same in Luke 2. The question is, what maximizes the most for the Lord? The question is, what lasts longest? Well, that answer is easy. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. Well, that guides our investments then. What maximizes most for the Lord? Sometimes it will be sleep. Other times it will be no sleep. Right? Sometimes it will mean eating well. Other times it will mean fasting. Sometimes it'll be saving our money in order to have that which we can give. Other times it'll be giving without the safety net of saving. What about our time squeezing, sacrificing as much as possible for, for the Lord? You've heard me say it before. People protest, I'll have no free time for myself. Exactly. You're always on duty. You and I and everyone else need to get comfortable with way beyond the normal max. Yes, it's time to have, it's fine to have time for, for rest and rejuvenation. We need time to actually think and contemplate and vision, and dream and plan. And, but the goal, even in our leisure, is labor for the kingdom. Some of you may question whether this is extreme, whether it's imbalanced. But judge what is said by the standards of God's word alone, not the prejudices of this perishing age. Please don't let that happen again. Let the plea for moderation be left to the perennial moderates. In the face of all of the pressures, 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 men pull back. But that actually accelerates the deterioration rather than prevents it. If ministers are not in dead earnest, the people never will be. And if people want a pastor that is into all that is vogue, they will have plenty to choose from. But may God have mercy on their souls. We are called to build a house for the Lord, to erect the walls of Zion. And that must be all-absorbing or not attempted at all. It can't be half-hearted. Hastening on, fourth thing, Living for another world means living for the kingdom, capital K kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. Living for Christ's kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. We learn to transfer our concentration from merely earthly kingdoms to Christ's eternal kingdom. My friends, you need to learn to sing Psalm 2 end to end, the whole psalm, in order to get your head and your heart straight. You know, we long, we long that our government had an interest in lending its civil support to the advance of God's kingdom. Professing, protecting, promoting the true religion, upholding both tables of the law, contending for Christ's crown lights, and so on. We would rejoice over all of that. 
but being consumed with political engagement in a state that is an open war with the divine king is a deluded diversion resulting in entangled alliances. Some Christians live glued to the so-called conservative news networks, preoccupied with the wrangling within this rebellious empire. What is this? I'll tell you. It amounts to a great frenzy over the politics of a sandcastle. It's a great frenzy over the politics of a sandcastle. The tide will come in with the Lord's crashing waves and wash it all away, leaving no trace on the beach. And with it, all the consumption of time and energy and thought and focus and all that will come to nothing. Nothing meaningful, nothing enduring. The believer who sees the unseen hangs all their hopes on an unbreakable kingdom and devotes their strength to supporting whatever and whoever strives for its advance and expansion. For it alone shall truly endure. That means the advance of the kingdom, planting more churches, planting a whole lot more churches. Why not? Because we can't? Because the Lord is unable? The answer is no in both respects, and you know it. We have not because we ask not. And we ask not because we want not. And therefore, we will not. Where is the problem? Often competing worldly interests press out biblical priorities. Fifthly, living for another world means living for an eternal reward, not perishable riches. Living for an eternal reward, not perishable riches. We heard this morning, pilgrims, sojourners, citizenship that is in heaven, all those things. Too many are living out of a burn barrel. Too many within the church, largely within our own nation, are living out of a burn barrel. And so they stuff it full of their most prized possessions and then upgrade to a bigger burn barrel. But the fact is that all of our stuff is going to burn. As we heard this morning, Second Peter 3 and elsewhere, our stuff is going to burn. And as I said to you all not too long ago, it's helpful for us to to actually go through the exercise of picturing it. You picture your most prized possessions. You stand with, in front of it. Whatever it is, house, car, you know, some other thing, picture it in a pile of ash. Get that in your head. Get it in your heart. Because that's where it's headed, ultimately. You can't hang your heart on it. You can't make it the object of your joy. You can't live for it. A pile of ash. You can have it, but it can't lay hold of you. God promises eternal rewards that are proportionate to our sacrificial labors. Reward is proportionate to our labors. That means all of our service to Christ 
corresponding reward. All of our suffering, corresponding reward. All of our sanctification, corresponding and proportionate reward. The Lord tells us to lay up, for, lay up treasures for ourselves. You know, I said recently in a sermon, the Lord doesn't tell you not to seek greatness. He just tells you how to seek it. Become servant of all and so on. The Lord doesn't ever tell you that the desire for riches is a problem. The desire for riches is not the problem. The problem is the kind of riches. Heavenly ones are the ones that we're to, we are to long for, as you see here in Hebrews 11. Jesus actually commands you, lay up treasures for yourselves, but above the reach of the things of this world. Notice that he also says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's a command too. Everyone dies in physical poverty. You think, oh, those poor people, you know, they died in poverty. And, and I'm not dismissing that, that compassion. But here's the fact. Everyone dies in poverty. Bill Gates and whoever else, with their untold billions, they die in poverty. Because at the moment of death, you can't take any of that with you. You're poverty stricken at death. You lose it all. Your true wealth is determined by what you have five seconds after you die, not five seconds before you die. Five seconds after you die, are you rich now? Are you rich toward God? Have you laid up treasures in heaven? What treasure is stored beyond this life? That's seeing the unseen, my friends. If we're bereft of everything when we die, why not unload it for Christ before we die? This leads to changing the question from how much can I keep to how much must I keep? How much do, can I do without? How much can I possibly give up? But we don't stop there. Because seeing the unseen actually takes us further. It takes us beyond the concept of giving up. It takes us beyond this, the concept of sacrificing things. Because when you see clearly the heavenly inheritance, the rich reward, the imperishable treasure, we see that our giving is not ultimately sacrifice at all. It's an investment that yields incalculable returns. For us, it's actually exchanging gravel for gold. And it loosens our grip on what is perishing and tightens our grip on what is permanent. And so we have that phrase, which I love so much, from 20th century missionary Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. You think of retirement. What, what is that? It's not the absence of work. For most, for most believers, it should be the exchange of one kind of work for working full-time for the Lord. 
And if so, then maybe there is a place to save for retirement. If retirement is spent in service of the king and not ourselves. Resources that enable us to do more for him. Right? What we need is detachment. 1 Corinthians 7 but this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they have, that they had none. It goes on. And they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. It is having possessions without being possessed by them. This comes out in various ways. You know, a little kid hits your car with a bowl. You get all wound up. You know, kids have to respect people's property and this costs money and we need to be responsible and stewardship and so on. And that's the message the child needs to hear. True. The child needs to be told. Right? Eighth commandment with respect to the people's property and so on. But by your reaction, it's not the message that you need to hear. Get a grip. You'd view it very differently, wouldn't you, when you see that same car in the junkyard several years from now? What was I thinking? Think biblically. That's the answer. There's a difference between detachment and deprivation, being deprived of things. Right? You can be poor as dirt and not be detached from the things of this world. You could be absolutely consumed with stuff and getting stuff and money and whatever else. I mean, the poorest person on the planet may be the least attached person. And you could be a person who is wealthy that really is detached. As you see examples of in, in the Bible, who are able to say, it's the Lord's, he takes it, my hand's open and loose and stuff burns up and lightning strikes. It's okay. Never hung my heart on it in the first place. Some of you think you're detached and you're a million miles from it, which is why God has to take things away from you to show you and to loosen your grip on this world and to tighten your grip on what matters most. My friend, your soul depends on it. Your soul hangs upon it. And there are some, you know, for those that are actually experiencing the stranglehold of the world, who are even inordinately more, more, more than others, really taken up with the things of this world and really consumed with the things of this world, it may mean selling everything and giving it to the kingdom. That is on the table. Don't think to yourself, well, we're not, we're not doing that. It may be exactly what the Lord calls you to do in order to break your heart from its idols. The question is, if so, would you be sorrowful like the rich young ruler? That's the question, isn't it? Calvin died poor in an unmarked grave. Knox died in poverty. We could list a whole lot of others. But they were men who had laid up treasure to come. 
Well, whether God gives wealth or withholds it, we're focused on laying up a better treasure in heaven. You know, some people say, well, if the Lord would give me this job or Lord would give me this house or if he'd give me this amount of money, you know, then I would use it for the kingdom. Think of all the things that I could do for the kingdom and so on. People that talk like that, sorry, but I, I, hardly, I highly doubt it. I mean, here's the question. Do you use what you have now entirely for the Lord? Do you? If not, then who are you fooling? Because if not now, you won't do it then when you have even more. We get in order to give. The Christian is a funnel. That's all we are is a funnel. We never get, we never graduate beyond being a funnel. Our time, right? The Lord gives us a certain amount of time. We're a funnel and it's funneled into the things that matter most, the things that last the longest, the things that extol the glory of God. Our time, the, the, the gifts that the Lord's given to us in terms of our abilities, our energy, our health, our resources, whatever it is, we're funnels. And keeping is theft. I actually could preach a whole sermon on this because it's one of those, it's, it's amazing when you start looking for it, it's everywhere. Where the Lord, the Lord gives us this concept of keeping for ourselves is actually thievery. Use my time for me. Use my gifts for my promotion. Use my resources for myself, whatever it is. Right? Picture it. The master says to his servant, here, and he hands him a wad of money or a gift or something and says, take it to so-and-so. Servant says, fine. And then he runs off, sticks it in his own pocket, never delivers it. What do you call that? You call that a thief. He's filching from the master. That's the picture. You know, that's why in Ephesians 4, he who steals, steal no more. Get a job. Go to work. Save up your money so that you have something to give. Right? Malachi 3. Will ye rob God? Why the word rob? It's because of this point that we're seeing here. We're funnels. And there's the objection, of course. Some who are better situated say, look, man, pastor, you know, I sacrificed, I was diligent, I was disciplined, I studied hard. You know, when others were goofing off and other people were being lazy and so on and so forth, I deserve to make more money. Absolutely, that is true. I would defend that more than anyone. That's absolutely the case. You should have a higher compensation for the things that you bring and the benefits that your labor yields. But if that's true and you make more, what is God's purpose? What's God's end? All that hard work and sacrifice and diligence and using your gifts and all that stuff. The fruit of your labors means three things. It means, first of all, you developed your gifts more than others to be used for him. Now, your gifts are more developed to be used in ways that wouldn't be used otherwise for him within the kingdom. Secondly, you will have more time for the kingdom than a factory worker who's working double shifts and so on. There's more that you can do for the kingdom. Praise God. And you have more discretionary funds. 
for the kingdom as well. Oh, that's fantastic. And for those who have less, you're not off the hook either. Because there's the poorest of the poor, the, the widow who comes with her two mites. If anyone had an excuse to say, well, what I have is for me and no other. Nothing's left for the Lord. She's it. And yet Jesus says, look at that woman. Two mites, worthless nothingness, pennies, worthless. She's given more to the kingdom than everybody else that's dumped all their wealth in. Because she gave out of her want and not abundance. The fruit of seeing the unseen in some is living for another world. To borrow an expression from athletics, the goal is to leave absolutely everything on the field. To leave everything on the field. To die empty with no reserves left to expend. To have given all, to with, have withheld nothing for Christ, his cause, his kingdom. To have exchanged all the gifts, abilities, strength, energy, health, whatever else, to have exchanged all of our resources in this world for the far greater ones in the world to come. Seeing the unseen supplies the motivation. The sight of Christ, the kingdom, heaven, the eternal reward, the resurrection, and so on. It is only by seeing the unseen by standing above the world, by living outside the world, by not being of the world, that we have any hope of transforming it. And all the culture warriors of 21st century reformed America and all their labors will amount to a hill of beans. Amount to nothing. In conclusion, an anemic, this worldly church will never, ever, ever capture the imagination of the rising generation. The typical Christian drivel is no competition to the fanfare of the world and its attractions. No. Give our professing young people a sight of the eternal kingdom, a sight of an imperishable reward, and most of all, a sight of the glory of Jesus Christ, and by the blessing of God, they will sell all and set about to conquer the world for him. There's no comparison. Pray that God would get it from our heads into our hearts, and maybe, just maybe, we can be used to convey it to others. But I'll tell you what I told those at the conference last week, and you can mark these words. If the Lord would raise up even 10 people in this congregation, if the Lord would raise up 10 people, only 10, and as I said then, I mean it, there is no more needed who truly embodied these truths. Well, the world as we know it would be transformed. The impact would be incalculable. The harvest would burst the barns. And well over 100 years from now, 
when all here are laid in the dust, another generation of saints will still be gathering in the sheaves from it. And at long last, we will once again hear in the streets these that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, give, we pray, to us and this generation those who would live for an unseen world. O Lord, we long for children and young people who would savingly, sanctifyingly be brought under the power of these truths. Give us parents, Lord. Give us parents who will actually train their children with a Christian maximalism from their youth. Add thy blessing to it. Give to us, O Lord, that our hearts would be captivated with the sight of what is unseen, the glory of thy beloved Son. Help us, O Lord, to live under its power. Come and fetch glory for thy own great name. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.